Hello and welcome to another episode of the County Cricket Podcast in association with our friends at Bear Crickets. I'm your host, Aaron, aka the Cricket Connoisseur, and joining me for today's incredibly special episode of TCCP is none other than sports turf professional and innovator in the world of the turf industry, Miss Meg Lay. So Meg, first things first, thank you ever so much for taking the time to come onto the podcast today. It's an absolute pleasure to welcome you on for a chat about all things county cricket and, of course, the world of sports turf. I've got to ask, how has your day been so far? Oh, firstly, thanks so much for having me. Um, yeah, today's, today's been all right so far. It's been pretty cold um, and I have to remind people it's still autumn, so um, I think it's only going to get worse. But um, yeah, I've, I've been out on the tractor uh, verta draining this morning, which uh, in shorts isn't isn't too much fun, but I've got a reputation to uphold of never wearing trousers. So I'm exactly like that. I used to work on a farm, and whether it was four degrees or minus four degrees, always shorts, shorts all year round. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a funny one. I think you'll find you'll find quite a lot of people working on on grounds and farms for sure are in the shorts club. It's just, we're a strange breed, I think. Yeah, I used to get quite a few comments, to be honest. Everyone else would be in jeans or trackies, and yeah, I was just there in a pair of Adidas shorts. But <laughs> as I said, all year round, nothing wrong with wearing shorts in winter, even when it is freezing. And yeah, you're spot on as well. Here in England, it's absolutely Baltic. At the moment, yeah. woke up this morning, there's frost here in Warwickshire. Is that the, the same in Gloucestershire? Yeah, it's been close to it anyway. Um, yeah, very, very cold. <laughs> Yeah, it is. And then you just look on Instagram and you see all the cricketers and they're on their overseas tours in India, New Zealand, Australia, South Africa. You see those beaches, those glorious sunsets. It looks about 30 degrees. And yeah, we're freezing here in England and Wales. So yeah, it's all part and part of this wonderful sport. And of course, living in a country which does have these extreme seasons. But we're not here to talk about the trials and tribulations of the great British weather. Instead, we're here to discuss all things cricket and, of course, the wonderful world of sports turf. So, Meg, before we get into our conversation about your experiences over here in the UK, I want to transport you all the way back to the origins of the Meglay cricketing story. So, what were your first ever memories of cricket, either playing or watching this simply sensational game? Oh, I've always loved cricket. I can't remember it not being a part of my life. Uh, I used to go, my, both of my parents played cricket, uh, and I, I used to go and watch my dad play quite a bit. Um, and so, I, I, yeah, I got into it really young. We had, There was a program in New Zealand schools called Have a Go Cricket, and they would come around and do taster sessions. And so I was probably about five or six when I had my first taster session and signed up to play club cricket when I was eight and it was uh it was in a boys team but there were four of us girls so it was it was really a mixed team and I absolutely loved it right from the start had a had a great time um you know started I sort of started working my way up and as a teenager I uh I played I've got my one first class cap which I will treasure forever and then uh since then retired to being a specialist first slip who bats nine uh, which I'm quite happy to do to be honest I bet you are. Far less injuries in the slips, aren't there? I suppose unless you're, you're caught an errant ball to the face. But yeah, other than that, definitely prefer to, to being a same bowler, isn't it? In terms of oh. the, the achy muscles, you wake up feeling incredibly, you just feel as yeah. stiff as a board as a same bowler. Oh, for sure. I um, uh, Yeah, I, it was that was what I did. I was a bowled seam from you know, my whole life. And then 
um, I actually I got the yips, so um, I sort of tr I tried to reinvent myself as a batter, but um, certainly reinvented myself as a as a good good slip catcher in club cricket, which I really enjoy. <laughs> as you should as well. Everyone needs some good slips, and trust me, in village cricket over here, goodness me, you do see some really bad slip Gordons, some poor drops, some terrible misfields. So yeah, I think quite a few clubs would be looking for some specialist slips at the at the club cricket level, but. In terms of those early days, before we talk about your cricketing idols in the world of professional cricket itself, because you've got an awful lot to choose from over in New Zealand and, of course, on the world stage. But you mentioned the importance and the impacts of your parents, Meg, just to give them a quick shout out to to kickstart this episode in a very wholesome way. What are your parents' names, just for the listeners out there? Mike and Pauline, they're um. They're great. They, you know, I grew up on a farm with my parents, so I've I've always been into the outdoors and stuff. And they're both really sporty people. Uh, and even now, you know, my my dad works closely in rugby, and he's he's got a real big influence in women's rugby in New Zealand, which is really important to me. And I've I've learned a lot from him in that. And then my mum is just like she's just an amazing community volunteer. You know, she she runs the local running club. She she gets stuck into so many different sports events and. No, I'm, I'm really lucky to have them as influences. Well, shout out to Mike and Pauline. And you mentioned beforehand, Meg, that both of them really love their cricket, which is fantastic to hear. And in terms of their roles in the game, were they batters? Were they bowlers? Were they keepers? What did they do on the cricket field? It was funny. Uh, so my dad, he was, a, he was a bowler at first. And then uh, as he got older, because he, he still plays the occasional game and um, he'll he'll wicket keep, which um, leaves him. He won't be able to walk for for a good couple of weeks afterwards. But um, so yeah, that that's him now. Mum, it's funny we're talking about fielding and slips. Mum has the story that she she was playing for her, her dad's team, my granddad's team, and she took ten catches and slips. And we haven't been able to verify that story, but she stands by it. So um, <laughs> if anyone was in mum's team back then, then let us know. But we're a bit unsure about that one. So, yeah. Yeah, if anyone does have some some further information about that, we could do with that on, on Cricket Archive or Crick Info. Just have a look for it. Goodness me, 10 slip catches in a match is incredibly impressive. Shows some good bowling as well, doesn't it? <laughs> wow. So very much a, a cricketing influence from a very early age, Meg, and that's absolutely wonderful to hear. And aside from your family influence, which I'm guessing by that description has had an absolutely tremendous impact, what about the, the world of professional cricket then in terms of the domestic or indeed the international game? Did you have any idols, any icons, any influences in those early years who you tried to emulate in a way per se? Yeah, I, I was I was really lucky. I got uh, taken along to my first White Ferns game when I was I think I was I was about eleven, and I I became obsessed. I just I thought they were the I thought the coolest team ever, and I, I wanted to be a part of it. And I remember uh, at the time Sophie Devine was playing, um, Amy Satterthwaite. They were people I really looked up to, and I've been lucky enough to be able to play with and against both of them since. Um, and you know, coming when I was coming up through the ranks, there were people uh, that really, really looked out for me, like um, Leah Tahuhu. I remember we were in a in a magicians, which is the the regional team in Canterbury. That was we were in a, in a bowling session with Dale Hadley, and I was fifteen, and he was walking around the group and asking everyone to 
show them how we bowled our slower ball. And I was 15 and I had absolutely no clue. And I've just, I just like looked at Leah beside me and she just quickly whispered, like, she said, tell them this. And I did. And so, you know, I've, I've had those older girls looking out for me a lot. Um, and I, yeah, couldn't be more grateful because I did start off idolizing them for sure. Um, you know, Erin Birmingham, Katie Martin, they're, they're just another few. I've, I've yeah, been really lucky, had some positive influences. Well, some wonderful names in there. And oh, I've got to be honest, Meg, this is going to be a very, very difficult question. It really is. But if you did have to pick one particular knock or, or one particular bowling display from a White Ferns cricketer over the years, and trust me, there's quite a few that you could choose from, what would you say is the one which stands out the most over the course of, of your critting journey? I don't think you can go past Leah, to be honest. You know, she, she, I think she's got rec- records in terms of most wickets taken. Um, and she is, you know, a few yards faster than anyone else I've ever faced. It's pretty horrifying facing her bowling. Um, and so, yeah, she's, she was always someone I, I aspired to be like, I, I was the same height as her. So I assumed I'd be able to bowl as quickly, but, Nowhere near, nowhere near. Well, no, she is frighteningly quick, isn't she, Leah, to hoo-hoo, and a fantastic operator as well. As you mentioned, with those slower balls, cutters, a very wily operator, to say the least, and one of the finest to ever don the white fern shirt. So some very, very impressive role models there, to say the least there, Megan's. In terms of your club cricket, just before we get onto the world of sports turf and your experiences here in the UK, for those who don't know, you have played for a very, very illustrious team in New Zealand itself. So just for those who aren't aware, who is your club side back home in Canterbury? Yeah, I play for Old Boys Collegians and yeah, they've, they've definitely got some big names. It's, it's incredible, honestly. I mean, these are just some of the names who have represented them in the recent past. So we've mentioned Sophie Devine, Susie Bates as well, another legend of New Zealand cricket, Brenda McCullum. Ross Taylor, Sarah Taylor, the list goes on and on and on. It's an incredibly illustrious and prestigious cricket club in Christchurch itself. And yeah, in terms of your your memories and highlights, I suppose, from your time over there in Christchurch and playing for Old Boys Collegians, is there, again, one particular match or one particular highlight which stands out above all others? Uh, funnily enough, we, we want to... We won a final a couple of years back. It was a D20 final uh, for you know for the Premier Women's Grade, and it was it, it was about it came about 10, 12 years after I first started playing for the club, and it just felt like an accumulation of all these amazing experiences. We we had Katie Martin playing with us that day, and it is it's such a tight knit team, such a tight knit club, and it's so well run. And everyone that's come through the doors of that club has been such fantastic addition and so yeah to go and and win a win a big trophy like that was it was pretty cool for sure but there's been so many so many experiences I had you know my very first game that I played for them I think I was 13 or 14 and we were you know I had Sophie Devine and Erin Birmingham on my team and on the other team it was Amy Satterthwaite and it was yeah it's club cricket in Christchurch was a very high standard back then for sure. Yeah, it just sounds incredible. It really does. And as I said, I mean, that club has just produced some greats and has had some greats grace its its ground over the years. So, yeah, just wanted to touch upon that before we did talk about groundskeeping and, of course, the, the turf industry. But just one final question, actually, Meg, about your playing days. Do you miss them in a way? Because this is something which does come up a lot on this podcast when people do move away from 
the playing aspects of the game of cricket. Do you miss those days of, of playing in Christchurch at all? Oh, for sure. Um, I was really lucky. I, I went home last winter and uh, got to play a few games and got presented with my 100th Premier cap for the club. So, you know, when I can, I, I love to get home and play with them again. But it's over here, it's quite hard to get cricket in when I'm, I'm busy working in cricket the whole time. So, yeah, I absolutely miss it. I miss... I miss the team aspect more than anything. Um, sometimes I even preferred it when the games got rained off because you just, you just hang out with your team all day. And yeah, I, I, I do miss it. I love, love that team and love the club a lot. Well, I'm really, really glad to hear that. I really am. It's fantastic to hear such a, a positive experience back home in New Zealand. And yeah, I know I keep on mentioning this, but what a club that is. Flipping X, some absolute legends have graced that place over the years. And yeah, must have been tremendously special to represent them during your time back home in New Zealand. But Meg, I suppose we've got to the point of the podcast where we do need to talk about the sports turf industry because that is the main focus of today's podcast because this is part of our our groundskeeping series. And honestly, as someone who absolutely loves this game, I think it's brilliant that we're able to highlight the efforts of the ground staff in this country because you really are the unsung heroes of the county game. Without your efforts and hard work over the winter and of course the season itself we don't have a county circuit to enjoy so I'm really quite looking forward to this particular part of the conversation and before we get into the technical aspects and we talk about the the more technical side of the industry itself Meg how on earth did you get into groundskeeping in the first place because it is a somewhat niche thing to get into isn't it in terms of the world of cricket it is quite niche, and I, it's not something that I had ever thought about as being a career. And I think if you speak to most people working in grounds, they will say the exact same thing. Everyone's sort of fallen into it by accident. But when I moved over to Bristol, I was living with uh, Fee Morris and Fran Wilson, who both play for Western Storm. And they came home from training one day and said that they were really short on ground staff at Gloucestershire, and the guys they had were struggling. And I thought if they were that desperate, then you know they might. They might want the help of a rogue farmer from New Zealand who likes a bit of cricket. And, um, yeah, they, it turns out they were desperate enough and I got, got the job and they haven't told me to leave yet. But, um, but it's, it's funny because if I'd seen the job advertised, I wouldn't have applied for it because I assumed that you would need a PhD in something to be working in an international cricket ground. But the reality is, is that we, we need workers so desperately in this industry if you've got a good attitude we'll take you on it's um it's a tough gig at times and so we need all the people we can get 100 percent, and we'll talk about the more tougher aspects of the job itself as the podcast progresses but in terms of that initial first impression of bristol itself very very different to christchurch isn't it in terms of the city itself and obviously the weather at times as we all know here in England and Wales, it rains. It rains an awful lot. So I'm guessing that also would have, have come into the equation. But in terms of your first impressions of Bristol as a city and in terms of the county ground itself, what did you make of the, the West Country city? It's funny because I'm, I'm not even from Christchurch. I'm from the middle of nowhere. Um, so I'm, I'm further south than Christchurch uh, and just sort of came into the city to play cricket. So it was quite daunting moving into the middle of a big city, but I'm really glad that I came to Bristol. Um, the people in the southwest are just they're so nice, and 
um, yeah, it's, it's been a great place to sort of start, you know, start my career in England. I, I, I love it. Um, in, in terms of the ground, I, I got here and was quite overwhelmed. I, I came just to have a look before I even, the job was even on my radar and, you know, I was walking around taking pictures. I was pretty excited. So, um, yeah, it was, it was definitely very overwhelming at first, but in, in the best way possible, I think. Absolutely. And it's a lovely place to watch cricket. And of course, I suppose if you get the chance to, to play cricket as well, isn't it? Imagine the, the Gloucestershire and of course the Western Storm players, along with England players, do enjoy playing there. I just think it's a very, very special place to, to go and watch some cricket, whether that's international or indeed domestic. And in terms of that job application then, what does that actually entail? Because for those of us outside of the groundskeeping industry, how do you actually, first and foremost, apply for the job? And second of all, what does the application actually consist of? Yeah, it's interesting. It's uh, it's literally advertised online um, and there's there's always places looking. Um, and yeah, you just hand in your CV, go for an interview and it's just like any other job. But I think people are put off sometimes because they think they're underqualified when actually... There's, you can do a lot of learning on the job and there's there's so many ways into it. It's You know, you can do a degree, you can do an apprenticeship or you can work your way up through experience. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think following on from that, my advice would be to, if you want to get into it, just apply, just go for it. Absolutely. And we'll touch upon that advice later on because it, it's a shared theme across the country. We need ground staff. We really do. If we want to see... Not only top quality county cricket, but of course, top quality international cricket. We need people creating these pitches in the first place. Without ground staff, we don't have a game. It's as simple as that. So if you are interested in applying into this industry, just go for it. You've got absolutely nothing to lose. And look what can materialise. You get a lovely job in the outdoors. I know the weather's not great at times, and we'll probably touch upon that at some point in the podcast, but... The job itself is incredibly rewarding. And in terms of the job itself, Meg, what do you say is your favourite aspects of groundskeeping? What is it about this job, about this career, about this industry, which brings you back time and time and time again? For me, I I love the match days. I love seeing all of your hard work, all of your team's hard work come together. And especially when you've got a big crowd in, it's a big game and you can just sort of sit back and take a breath and go like, wow, we, we've done this. We've, and yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing accumulation of the team's efforts. And ideally, you just, you hope everyone has a good experience on the day. And, you know, that's, that's all we can ask for, really. But it's, it's a huge highlight. You get to watch some of the world's best cricketers play on surfaces that you've prepared, which can be quite surreal sometimes. Yeah, I imagine it is, because for us as spectators, Obviously, we just watch the game and we enjoy it. And many people go, wow, okay, that's got good bounce. It's got good carry, right? And you can really appreciate the the nature of a cricket pitch. But I suppose that's completely different when you yourself have had a part to play in creating that surface. It must be tremendously satisfying and, of course, very rewarding. And in terms of those surfaces, I think I might know the answer to this question. But in terms of those pitches so far, which one has been your favourite to prepare? Uh, for, for me, it's, it has to be Edge Baston. Um, <laughs> I, uh, yeah, it was for a women's Ashes game, which 
uh, is just about the pinnacle for me, um, barring maybe a World Cup final with New Zealand in it. I think the Ashes is, is definitely right up there. So, uh, yeah, that was, that was a huge honour. Well, let's talk about that because we just have to. First and foremost, because as many people know from this podcast, I'm a massive Warwickshire fan. So any excuse to talk about Edge Baston, I will take with both hands. But second of all, I was actually there for that game with my girlfriend and it was an absolutely fantastic game of cricket. Unfortunately, England did lose. We did lose and it was relatively close. I think it came down to the second last ball, if I'm not mistaken, Australia ultimately winning that game by four wickets. But it was an absolute belter of a surface and a great night as well. Really, really good game of cricket. So first and foremost, Meg, how did that opportunity manifest itself in the first place? Yeah, it was it was a funny one. I um I would I was in the well, I still am in the Woman in Cricket Network and in that Woman in Cricket Network is Claire Daniel, who is the operations manager at Edge Baston and She's someone who is just absolutely phenomenal, just incredibly switched on and just works away, chips away behind the scenes. And and you don't often know who's behind these things, but, you know, she's absolutely brilliant. And so I was in the same room as her and I, I spoke about how it was done in the US for the US Women's Golf Open, where it was a, a team of 30 of odd women who prepared the golf course. And I mentioned that to Claire and she said, could we do that in cricket? And I said, absolutely, not knowing that there were only three of us working in cricket, three women working in cricket, but I said there'd be no problem. So, yeah, that, that's how it started. And then Claire went went on and organised a lot of the behind-the-scenes sorts of things with Gary, uh, Gary Barwell, the head groundsman at Edgebaston. And uh, I was left to recruit the team, which proved quite difficult, but we got there. Well, you certainly did. And in terms of the team, Meg, I'll let you actually list all of the names and in terms of the recruiting process, go through that. But what were you looking for then in terms of that process, in terms of ground staff? Were you looking at particular sports? Because having looked at the, the list of names itself, you had, uh, you had Tara Sandford from Arsenal. Shout out to Arsenal, my club as well. Greatest club on the planet. But you, you didn't just bring in cricket ground staff, did you? You also brought in that football element. So was that something which was very much on your radar in terms of crossing? those two parts of the industry yeah for sure it, and it wasn't it was actually it was out of necessity as a as a as a start you know there's two two of us were in full-time in international cricket three of us in first class cricket full stop uh and you know the other two uh one had only had four weeks experience and the other one was an apprentice and they were both absolutely fantastic but that was what we were working with the three of us who um you know we, we couldn't do it on our own so that's why I had to go and look elsewhere. And I'd, I'd read about Tara's story and I thought it was really inspirational. She's the first woman to prepare pitches at Arsenal. And so she was one of the first names on the list. I knew we had to get her on board. And then there were some uh, women who worked at schools and a couple of match day uh, cricket staff. So we got there in the end. We got nine people, which was absolutely huge. And... Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, we, we all stay in touch and I'm hoping we can plan something else again in the future, for sure. Well, just touching upon that before we do talk about the future, because I'd be very interested to know if that is something on the radar for 2024 and the years beyond. But in terms of the experience itself, first and foremost, what was it like preparing a surface for a women's ashes match? Because as you said, it's massive. It's absolutely huge. England, Australia 
And that series was mega, wasn't it? Ending 8-8 in the end. It was absolutely phenomenal from start to finish. What was that like, even just preparing that surface for a game of that magnitude? It was absolutely terrifying. And, that's, and you know, it's, it's part of the reason why I wanted to make sure we had a team of really skilled groundswomen. Because if it was just any volunteer off the street, that wouldn't be doing the issues justice. They, everyone had to know what they were doing. And everyone had to be able to bring something and they were they were all super qualified so yeah it was really it was a really daunting prospect especially as i hadn't seen a pitch through from start to finish you know i've, I've helped out on every pitch we've prepared at gloucestershire but I've, I've never made the decisions on how we do things and so that was a daunting prospect and definitely felt chucked in the deep end but i knew i could do it and i had i had the guidance of of gary at edge baston who uh was there for all my questions and Obviously, you know, they it's a it's a different ground there. There's new things to learn and so I, I wanted to make sure I got right because in, in cricket you only have to turn on the TV for five minutes and you'll hear someone talking about the pitch, good or bad. And I wanted to make sure that the pitch was really good because this wasn't just any pitch, it was prepared by nine women. And if it was no good, I didn't want that to be a factor. I didn't want to let I didn't want to let the entire female <laughs> gender down by producing a terrible pitch so I, I did feel the pressure definitely but um no it came off well I was I was pretty happy with it as you should be as well because it was a great game of cricket and what I did notice about that surface was that there was something for everyone so for example when Sophie Eccleston came onto bowl there was some turn in the surface which Edgebaston you always love to see you always love to see that it's one of the grounds in this country which does turn a bit like Old Trafford and in terms of the surface itself, what were you looking for in terms of the pitch? Were you looking in terms of some particular level and variance of, of carry, bounce, turn? What were you looking at producing in terms of that particular surface for the Ashes match? For me, women's cricket, the bowlers are slightly slower than the men, obviously. And so I think it's even more important that you get the pitch right because it can expo if the pitch isn't quite right, it can expose some things. I decided to leave the grass a little bit longer than what I would for a men's match to try and assist with that, you know, carry and bounce and just get that ball coming through nicely. And I, I think that was the right decision um, because it, these, are, these are sorts of things that people don't often think about. It's, it's, it is a different game, the women's game, and how can, we, how can we showcase women's talents in the surface that we produce. I think that's that's a really important thing and that's something that Gary really believed in as well. So yeah, that was the big one for me, was how we could bring out the best pace and bounce. Well, that's really, really interesting to hear. And in terms of actually manufacturing that and creating that result, again, how do you go about doing that? Because we're talking about the final products, of course, which is that pitch, which has got that extra degree of carry, bouncing, Eccleston's case as well for the spinners had some turn in the surface but how do you go from just having a, a regular cricket pitch to producing that ideal cricket surface what is the process behind turning that pitch into an international quality playing surface it's such a hard one because and it's a hard it's a hard trade to learn because you there is no set manual on how to do it because at every ground on every pitch Every time you prepare it will be will have to be different because there's so many variables, uh, you know, the weather being a huge part of it. And so at Edgebaston, uh, you know, we 
put a lot of water in to start off with. You have to absolutely flood a pitch full of water to hold that moisture in. And then we rotated between rolling and brushing it. And so brushing sort of strips the plant of all the moisture um, and makes it go that whiter colour. And so we did a lot of that. I probably brushed the pitch a thousand times to try and, and especially with keeping the grass longer, it was important that we got out a, as much of that moisture as we could. Um, and so, yeah, it's just a, it's a fine art of brushing and rolling and not doing it too much so that it cracks. Um, but enough so that it dries out properly. Uh, we used um, lights to, you know, th- it was a bit cloudy leading up to it, so we we definitely used some lights to try and bake the pitch out. Yeah, it's, it's a fine art for sure. It certainly is, and I'm so glad that you've actually talked about the, the different processes because recently we had Tom Cowley on the podcast from the Aegeus Bowl, and his favourite aspects of the process itself was the mowing. He just found that a very satisfying and rewarding aspect of being a member of the ground staff. So in terms of those processes, Meg, what's your favourite part about preparing the pitch itself? Is it the mowing? Is it the rolling? Is it the brushing? What is it about the pitch preparation itself which you find to be the the most fun and most enjoyable aspect, I suppose? I'll, I'll be made to do the brushing all the time now when I say this, but it is the brushing because I mean, it's a it's a horrible job in itself, but you can just watch as as the day goes on, as the week goes on. You see the pitch slowly starting to change color. It's very tangible. You take a picture at the start of that and at the end of the day, and you can see that color change. and And I just think brushing the pitch makes such a huge difference in how it plays. And that's how they how they do it in New Zealand. We we leave quite a lot of grass on the pitch here. It gets cut down to sort of five six mils. Uh, back in New Zealand, it can be fourteen mil. And they just try and flatten the grass as much as possible. So, yeah, yeah, brushing is. I think it's. I think it's key, and I think there are a few few grounds that could definitely do more of it. Um, it's, it's for, for me. It's just. It's the. It's the key, really, stripping the plant of moisture and, yeah, watching that color change. Well, that's really really interesting because that is a very different answer to what Tom gave in terms of our last podcast. So, again, it's fascinating to learn about the different processes and. Obviously, it's a subjective thing, isn't it? Everyone has their own little bits and pieces which they enjoy the most. And in terms of your equipment, Meg, because as a member of the ground staff, you have a lot of very technical gear at your disposal, don't you? In terms of the mowers, the rollers, obviously your handy brush, and then stuff like clegg hammers and trimble meters. In terms of the equipment itself, what do you say is your favorite piece of equipment to use as a member of the ground staff? Well, I think my favourite job is uh, mowing the outfield. So we do that on a Baroness triple ride-on. And so I just I sit on the sit on the mower every day in the summer for about three hours listening to a podcast or the Spice Girls or whatever it is. And, um, yeah, you can just, just zone out and and it's tangible. At the end of the – once you're finished mowing, you can look and you see your beautiful mowing pad and you feel pretty good about yourself. So, yeah, the, the Baroness is my favourite piece of equipment to use for sure. Fair enough. And in terms of that mowing process, because I imagine this is something which will come up a lot, to be honest, over the course of this series. You've mentioned it, Meg. Tom mentioned it. I imagine a number of ground staff will mention it. And I was even reading an article the other day by a good friend of the podcast, Sam Delling. Shout out to Sam. He did an interview in The Telegraph, I think it was, or The Times, with uh, Henry Lansbury, who used to play for Arsenal and Aston Villa. And he's just started his own lawn mowing company. 
And he said it found his findings. It's so satisfying. He'll do it for free. So in terms of that mowing process, again, why is that so rewarding? Is it just the case that, you know, it changes the entire aesthetics of the surface? Is there something about the process itself, which is just quite nice and relaxing? Why do so many people in this industry enjoy mowing? I don't know. I think it's you're just sort of left alone with your thoughts for a bit. It can be almost therapeutic, I think. And yeah, and then when you finish, you, you get to see your, your mowing pattern. And I've got way too many pictures on my phone of mowing patterns. It's, it's a bit ridiculous, really. Um, so yeah, I think it's the therapeutic nature of it. I, I don't know. We're a strange breed. Well, in, in some ways, yeah, it is. I think some people would find it a little bit niche again, but that's part and parcel of the industry, isn't it? And you mentioned those patterns. I always think back to, to football in that regard. And it was the ground staff at the, at the King Power in Leicester. They used to produce these incredible patterns on the pitch. I think the Premier League actually banned it, which is a bit of a shame. But yeah, is that something which, again, you would like to do, Meg, maybe in cricket? I know it's a little bit different, but... In terms of those patterns, is that something which you could see? Because in New Zealand, you see these lovely outfields, don't you, with the concentric circles? Yeah, I'd love to see it, to be honest with you. <laughs> the Oval, which is my local test ground back in New Zealand, the mowing patterns that they produce are pretty phenomenal. Um, and yeah, I think I think they look cool. Um, it's just the amount of work it takes, though, to just get a simple grid pattern going, the measurements and string lining and everything. It's so much work. So it would be really interesting to see how they do those extravagant patterns. And I can imagine it takes them a really long time. But I'd love to do it. Looks cool, doesn't it, though? In terms of those aerial shots of the drone, I mean, or helicopter, depending on whatever they use, to be honest, on the broadcast. But yeah, it does look incredibly aesthetically pleasing so who knows we might see that in bristol one day we'll have to wait and see when you see those haggly oval-esque patterns <laughs> you know why it's because of this conversation but meg before we discuss the the more difficult aspects of the role because it's like with anything in life isn't it you've got your wonderful aspects and then you have got your more negative aspects it's just how any job works it's a very difficult industry to say the least in terms of the hard work the dedication and of course the sacrifice at times which goes into preparing that cricket surface. But just one final thing on the Edgbaston conversation. In terms of the future, is that something which we could see again in 2024 and the years beyond, not only at Edgbaston, but of course at other venues? Yeah, there's. I think you'll find next year is going to be a really big year for women in sports turf. We've got a few things lined up that are going to be absolutely massive and... Yeah, yeah, we're really excited. It's a great group of women we've got, and a few more keep coming out of the woodwork. So it's platforms getting bigger, and yeah, we're just going to keep trying to make a difference. But yeah, absolutely expect even more from us in twenty twenty four. Well, that's fantastic. It really is, and yeah, we we eagerly await as to what those events and those matches will be because, as you mentioned, I mean it, it's staggering, isn't it? Just how few of a percentage of the sports turf industry is made up of women. So as a result of some research which was carried out, I think last year, or it might have been 2021, the results showed that just 3% of the industry at the moment are women. And I did just want to touch upon that, Meg. Why do you think that figure is so low? Because in terms of the job itself, it's a very open and inclusive industry, isn't it? I mean, 
having spoken to, to ground staff up and down the country, everyone's incredibly friendly. Everyone is incredibly welcoming, and it's a very nice industry to get into. So at this stage, why do you think that figure is so low, per se? Well, they, they say 3%, but I honestly think it's lower than that. I think I know pretty much everyone in the UK, and I, whether the women just were better at responding to the survey, I don't know. Um, there's really none of us. In terms of across the country, across all sports, uh, I can think of 14 women. So it's pretty, it's pretty dire. And, I, and like you said, I, I don't know why my experience has been totally positive. The people in this industry are just not bothered. They are not bothered by who is applying for these jobs. And traditionally it has been men. But the, the barriers are false barriers. I've, I've never had a single bad experience. Everyone's incredibly welcoming. And, yeah, I think it's just something that something that needs to change though we don't have enough people in the industry full stop and you've got half the population that aren't doing the job and especially when part of the reason why the industry is struggling so much is because of the increased demands on facilities due to women's sport which is great women's sport should be played at these top venues and trained at the top facilities they absolutely deserve to be there but we don't have the infrastructure at the moment to keep up and so I think it's up to women to step up and make sure that that the women are playing on the best surface as possible. Absolutely. And I suppose for those who are maybe on the fence in terms of making that job application or even just looking at taking this as a career path, what advice would you give those people? Because it is a very niche industry. But as, as we've alluded to throughout this podcast, it's very open. It's very warm. It's very welcoming. It's a great industry to get into, to be honest. And look at the benefits. You know, you get to work at these incredible venues. You get to be in the grey outdoors and you get to soak in the lovely sunshine when it's not pouring down with torrential rain here in the UK. But in terms of those who maybe are a little bit tentative of taking that first step, what advice would you give those people in terms of making that leap into ground staffing and the turf industry as a career path? If it were me, I would at this point say, go and find a ground that you would like to have a go at and get in touch and ask if you can help out on a match day or ask if you can come in during the week and ask questions and see what they do and get to meet the people behind the scenes. And then hopefully that might be enough to sort of reassure you to go and apply for a job. Um, Meet some of the people. It'll be, I guarantee you'll have a great experience and I can't imagine many people turn down someone wanting to come and see what they do. Um, I, I would, you know, happily show anyone, anyone what we do. We would love to have more people to come and help us out on match days. So, yeah, I'd just say get in touch. Don't worry about it. Just apply. Just do it. it it's literally that simple. Just do it. Don't doubt yourself. Don't be put off by the fact that you might not be qualified. Just do it. And again, Meg, completely echo that sentiment. We need ground staff, not just in cricket, but I suppose in in sport in general. As you mentioned, we are seeing this boom, aren't we, in professional sports. And as that demand does increase, we need ground staff to supply it because without the work of ground staff, we don't have sports. It's as simple as that. You know, it's such a fantastic job and a very, very unsung job at that. So if you are interested, in taking the plunge in this industry, go out and do some shadowing. Just ask some questions. I mean, something which we do at Edgebaston, I say we as though I'm part of, of Gary's team, 
just for the record, I'm not, although I do think Gary and his staff do a wonderful job, but something which happens at Edgebaston during championship match days is that the ground staff will go out on the pitch and they'll do almost like a Q&A and a bit of a talk about what goes into surface preparation. And I just think that's fantastic. So again, I suppose our advice from today's podcast would be if you're interested in taking that plunge into this industry, just do it. As Meg has just so eloquently put it, just do it. Those three words which are very, very useful to say the least. But Meg, aside from the more positive aspects of the job, because it is tremendously rewarding, tremendously satisfying when everything goes to plan, isn't it? It's wonderful when life goes to plan in general, but in particular, when you're a member of the ground staff and you see this immaculate surface and you get great responses and good feedback, it must be tremendously satisfying. But unfortunately, in a country like England, the weather can be a massive, massive factor. And there are different variables, aren't there, which can completely derail your your job at times in terms of preparing that pitch surface. So in terms of the more difficult aspects of this industry, of the job itself, what do you say is the most difficult aspects of being a sports turf professional? I think particularly in cricket, more so than any other sport, is the amount of pressure and scrutiny we're put under. It's a really tough gig and cricket grounds around the country are completely under-resourced for the demands of professional cricket. Uh, in football, there's a the standard of pitches is just incredibly high. That is the standard that's been set. They spend millions on equipment to keep that pitch looking good. And in cricket, where the pitch is arguably more important, the same investment is it's nowhere near. And so the pressure is tough. We work the absolute best we can with the resources and the scheduling that we've got. And it's definitely a challenge when you've worked a 70-hour week, you've worked 20 days on the trot, and then something doesn't go right, usually through no fault of your own. And yes, you sort of have to delete social media for a few days. It can be It can be a really tough gig sometimes in terms of external pressure and people not quite understanding what it is that we do or how we are limited by our equipment and scheduling. So, yeah, it's a tough gig sometimes. It really is, and that's just part and parcel of the nature of this this industry beast, isn't it, unfortunately? Because in cricket, as you mentioned, the pitch really is a focal point, isn't it? If you've got a good pitch, people will praise it, but it doesn't get necessarily the, the spotlight, does it, and the media attention. But the moment that something goes wrong, all of a sudden, who's in the firing line? It's the ground staff. They should have done this better. They should have done that better. And in terms of those more difficult moments and difficult experiences, what do you say has been your most difficult moment from your time in England and Wales so far? Because I suppose a particularly difficult one would be that England-Ireland ODI, because as soon as that was abandoned, straight away, you mentioned social media. I mean, there was all sorts of comments, not just on Gloucestershire's page, but obviously on England's official one as well. So in terms of those more difficult days, those difficult moments, what do you say has been the toughest moment from your time on the ground staff in Bristol so far? I think, yeah, that that would definitely have to be the toughest. That was a really hard day for all of us. And yeah, the, the comments came thick and fast without anyone sort of making an effort to come and speak to us and chat and say, you know, hey, how did it go? What what went on? Whereas 
everyone in the turf industry knows that if something's gone wrong, there will be a reason behind it. It's not for a lack of trying. Um, and so I got plenty of messages from people in the turf industry, people I look up to saying, hope you're okay, you know, um, because they get it. They get that there's, there's always more, more to the story. And um, yeah, it was a, that was a tough day. We had, we're really lucky though. Like we have such a good team and we all sort of looked out for each other. Um, but yeah, we, we, we do the best we can under the, under the circumstances we've got. We don't have a hover cover here. We don't, have some of the resources that other grounds have and yeah we're just we're just five people trying to do our absolute best and that's all you can do and it is something which again unfortunately is part and parcel of the industry because you are in the spotlight obviously when the weather comes about you know as it did on that day it was absolutely pouring it down wasn't it and in terms of the day itself Meg again feel free to go into as much or as little detail as possible when I asked this question, but in terms of that day, what actually did happen out there in the middle? Because the weather was absolutely appalling, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I personally haven't seen weather like that before in my life outside of, you know, North Australia where they get tropical storms. It was it was pretty unbelievable. But, you know, like, firstly, if I was a spectator, I would have been annoyed. I would have been really annoyed because... You don't know what's going on. You just sort of you see things for, you know, what they are. And, yeah, I, I would be annoyed. I wouldn't have understood. And now I, I, I totally get it. It's, you know, we knew the rain was coming. We were well aware of it. We were ready to go. Um, but there is not a thing we can do until the umpires call us on. And that's those are just the ICC rules. You know, that's not even the umpires' fault. They They can't call us on until it's raining. And by the time it had started raining the sheets had so much water on them that we couldn't move them. Um, and that that's never happened before here. We've never had, had that problem where we couldn't move sheets because they just were underwater so quickly. And honestly, it was, I put in so, so much effort that day that it was the, it's the first time where I've, I've, you know, tried to get the covers on and then just had my hands on my knees thinking I was going to be sick because I had just put everything into it. The whole team did and yeah and then hearing comments about how how you know we, we were we were caught out and we we didn't do enough and then a lot of people calling for our sacking as well yeah it was it was really it was a tough day um we did all we could and yeah i, I feel really bad for the people who came to watch but I, all i can say is that we did our best and we always do every every single day on the job we do our best we work extreme hours for not a lot of money we do it for the love of it and yeah it, it sucks that it had to end that way it does but again at the same time it's like with anything right sometimes there are things which are just simply out of your control and on that day unfortunately for the spectators and of course the players and yourself on the ground staff it was just one of those days, but again, this is why I think it's so important to highlight these people in this industry because you, you put in so much effort, right? So much time, so much sacrifice, so much dedication into preparing these surfaces, and for some reason, there is just no spotlight, is there, on the turf industry at all? And in terms of the schedule as well, Meg, this is something which I did want to touch upon because it's a highly contentious topic, isn't it, at the moment, in particular with the players. We've just had a statement from Sam Cook talking about the T20 blast schedule, which, to be honest, 
is a little bit ridiculous at times, where you've got teams like my team of, of Warwickshire, for example, being up in Durham on a Friday night, and then after a long journey back down on the coach, you've got to prepare for a game against Nottinghamshire for blast off at Edgebaston. You know, it's a very, very gruelling schedule. And that's just for the players. That's not for the ground staff who have got the additional pressure of producing these surfaces. So in terms of the current schedule, what do you make of it? Because I did speak to Tom about this and he mentioned about the ideal pitch turnover is usually a couple of weeks down on the South Coast to prepare a top quality cricket surface. In terms of the domestic schedule and, of course, the internationals on top, is that a massive pressure for those in the sports turf industry? Yeah, it's it's a huge pressure, and I'm I'm glad you brought it up because I feel like it is it's a, such a big conversation scheduling, and no one seems to be making the link between the players and the ground staff. If the players are struggling, you know, we're there hours before the players show up. We're hours there hours after they leave for games and trainings every single time, and that's not just the home team. That'll be that's that's your women's team. That's academy teams. That's any other game that's being played, and so. The schedule, I think, affects us more than anyone else, and it, it's it's yeah, it's really tough. Um, and you know, due to the amount of games we play here, we only have twelve pitches that we can use, and every team wants to be playing on a new pitch, and that can't always happen. And when you're playing on a used pitch, it's obviously not going to be as good. And then, of course, that comes under fire as well. And the, these are the sorts of things that you can't really defend yourself about. You can't explain and. That I want people to know what it is we do. I want because it's it's interesting and it's and I didn't know anything about it as a player and I think I think players should know. I think you know higher up should know. I think the ECB should be a lot more aware of it. It's it's very it is very full on and the expectations are high. So yeah, the schedule is tough for sure. It certainly is, and I did just find that fascinating to be honest because. When, when I did speak to Tom about that, he mentioned about those long days, as you've just mentioned there, Meg, and he'd be up at like six o'clock in the morning, have to get to the ground for seven o'clock, and he'd do a 12-hour day. And for those of us who are spectators, you don't have any clue about that whatsoever. I mean, you might just see the ground staff hovering around, and obviously when it's raining, you see them bringing out the covers, but a lot of people do not quite understand and appreciate just how difficult this job is. It's not a case of just sitting around and watching the cricket and bringing the covers on when it rains. This is a 365 days a year job, which requires a tremendous amount of dedication and determination. And in terms of your day-to-day business at the, the county ground in Bristol, Meg, what does your typical working day in the season actually look like in terms of your hours, in terms of your jobs and responsibilities? What does a day in the life of a sports turf professional actually look like? I've never had two days that are the same. Uh, game days are completely different to a training day, for example. Um, you know, for a championship game, we will be in at 7, and we sometimes won't leave until 8.30 um, that night. And so they're very long days. And So we do that, and then we come in and do the same the next day and the next day and the next day. And then... Instead of getting the following day off, we are then prepping for the T20. That's the following day, you know. So it's, uh, yeah, it is. It's full on. They're, they're very long days. Um, covers take a long time. We so we, we spend spend the first hour or so uncovering, prepping the pitch, prepping the nets, 
Um, and then, you know, if the weather's good, on a, on a good day, we'll get to sit back and watch some cricket before, uh, before covering up again at the end of the day. But that's if the weather's good. Yeah, of course, yeah. And unfortunately, here on the shores of, of England and Wales, that's not often the case, is it? It really isn't. There's so much rain. If it's not raining, it's snowing. If it's not snowing, it's hailing. You know, it's just <laughs> at times yeah. the British weather really is very, very unforgiving. And I suppose, Meg, before we touch upon the future and wrap up today's episode of the podcast, I just wanted to touch upon your thoughts on the funding aspects of the industry, because you did mention that before, Hansons. You mentioned not just understaffing at times, which has been a problem across many grounds in this country, but also lack of resources. So in terms of addressing that problem, how do you think we should go about doing that heading into the future? Because as we've spoken about beforehand, there is going to be more demand. And as demand increases, the supply needs to increase as well. And if there aren't those resources, it's simply not not possible. This is not a job that you can go into almost just voluntary, can you? This is something which takes dedication. It, It takes hard work and you know, a, a tremendous amount of, of spirit at times as well, in particular, on those more difficult days. So in terms of addressing that issue for the future, in particular about demand and the need for more pitches, how do you think we can achieve that in not only the county circuit, but of course, in the wider English game? Yeah, you know, I think the ECB and counties need to figure out whether quality pitches and grounds is a priority. Um, and I mean, obviously, I think it should be. But if if it is a priority, we need better investment. The technology is out there and it's not being used because it's it's not deemed important enough. And yet every week we're getting critical comments about the pitch. So we need we need to invest more. Um, and you can look to football. Their grounds teams are absolutely massive. You know, Bristol City down the road, they've got 20 people there. And so you, you come to Gloucestershire and there's there's only there's only five of us, as there are at most grounds around the country there's between three and eight so it's it's not many and we need more staff we need we need more technology we need better investment in our professional development because that's how you're going to get better pitches that's going to how you that is going to that's how we're going to get better staff retention we lose so many staff to football and golf and private schools every year and they never come back the other way and so if we want good pitches we need to invest it's just i know that every area of sport needs investment for sure but if it's going to be a priority and by the way people talk about it in the media it is a priority then we need to start seeing that investment 100 percent. again completely echo that sentiment and in terms of those technological advances what kind of things are we seeing then in the industry which you think could could make cricket a bit better Oh, I mean, I think every every ground that can should have a hover cover. It's an absolute game changer. It completely changes the way you do things. It means that staff can be spend more time working on the grass than doing covers. You know, it takes us an hour when I was at Edge Best and it took five minutes. And that's a, that's a game changer. They are expensive. But if it, if it means keeping one game on, you've just about made your money back. You know, one international game that would have been called off it, it's it's a no-brainer to me, but there's there's technological advancements all the time. We need grow lights; they they help bake out the pitch and that sort of thing. There are now covers that are being that are being invented. They're coming to market where you can work on the pitch underneath the cover while it's raining. 
so th these are the sorts of things that we need, but they are deemed too expensive and perhaps not worth it at the moment, whereas I, I think they're absolutely worth it. And I think this year's shown that if your ground isn't properly invested in, then you, you end up losing money in the long run. Um, you need the ground to be operating at its best to allow cricket games to go ahead. And, you know, cricket games are what make, uh, what makes people money. So, we, um, yeah, I just think it's so important that clubs and governing bodies get behind their grounds teams because it it's the most important asset that they'll have. It really is. And, again, we cannot stress that enough. You know, this area does need investment. And it is very easy to say that, obviously, without having the means to actively invest that money into ground staffing. But as you said, Meg, it is such an important part of this game in particular because people can overlook football pitches. Yes, they might look a bit more aesthetically pleasing than others, but they don't have the same importance or impact as the cricket pitch. Those 22 yards are so important. If that is of a shoddy or, or under par standard, you do not have good games of cricket. And if you don't have good games of cricket, you don't get spectators. You don't get spectators. You don't bring in any revenue. It's as simple as that. So it's definitely an area which does need to be looked at. And I suppose our words too, those top brass of the ECB and of course of these county boards and clubs, invest in your ground staff, invest in those technologies because it's something which in the long run does have that payoff. If we can get more games of cricket first and foremost, so more games of cricket being played, but also better standard. Surely that's better for the future. You get that staff retention, you get public retention as well, and spectator retention. It's so, so important. So again, just something to think of if any of those are by some chance listening to today's episode of the Counter Cricket Podcast. It's something to definitely consider very, very strongly heading into the future. And talking of that future, Meg, before we wrap up, what's been a tremendously interesting and fascinating conversation on today's episode of TCCP. I just wanted to ask what you think the future holds for the sports turf industry, because judging by that previous segment, there's a lot of innovations, which to be honest, as a bit of a nerdy character, I do find very interesting. But aside from that, we are also going to see a lot more matches being played. The schedule is very gruelling and things are going to have to change if we are to, to match that demand. So, in terms of the future of the industry, how do you see things going for sports turf heading into the near future? I think now is the perfect time to get into sports turf because there is just so much opportunity. There aren't the young people coming through the industry, and which means that there are plenty of opportunities. You know, there's, there's less competition, which is wrong, you know. But it means that we can we can innovate a lot more. There are... Uh, there's just so many ways we can improve and you know I'm, I'm really keen to make it as big a difference as I can in the industry I want more people because I want to see women's sport thrive and I want to see them played on the best possible facilities and to do that we need people and there if you are a person who wants to get into it there is opportunity and endless amounts of it so that's that's what I hope I hope to see a lot more women I hope to see a lot more people full stop and, yeah, just continuing to provide the best facilities possible. Well, again, we completely echo those words. And for those who are interested and maybe just want to take a little step into this industry, something which 
we have become familiar with on this podcast is the Grounds Management Association. And I do believe there are some very, very good courses and interesting courses for those who want to learn more about this field. So we'll leave a link to those in the podcast description below. And to be honest, as we mentioned beforehand, Meg, just talk to people in this industry, talk to people in sports turf, because it's one of the easiest ways to get a foot in the door in this industry and learn more about it. And as you said, there's so much opportunity in this industry right now. It's a perfect time. If you want to be involved, get involved. We need people in sports turf in particular in the wonderful world of county cricket. And Meg, just one final question before we wrap up today's recording. What does the future hold for Meglay? So in terms of the near future and of course the years beyond that, what are you looking to achieve in this industry and I suppose in wider life heading into the next few years? Oh, I love I love Gloucestershire and you know I love um, I love my team here. Um, but ultimately I want to work at the biggest grounds in the world, be it cricket, rugby, football, tennis, whatever it is. And I, I want to take that knowledge and I want to use it to make sure that quality playing and training facilities are never again going to be an issue in the women's game particularly. Um, it's just so important to me that our female athletes get the absolute best facilities that can be provided the same as the men get. And yeah, I mean, ultimately one day be in charge at Hagley Oval, maybe. <laughs> but yeah, just I just want to use my knowledge to, to help people and make sport better. Well, Meg, it goes without saying, but obviously myself and everybody associated with the County Cricket Podcast are wishing yourself and, of course, the rest of the Gloucestershire ground staff all the very best of luck heading into the season of 2024 and, of course, the years beyond. I mean, it's been a fascinating chat. And if I may just say so myself, what you're doing for the industry on social media, whether that's Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, I think it's absolutely fascinating. And you're doing a brilliant job. You really are in terms of just shining that spotlight on this industry, on this career path, keep up the good work. And in terms of those socials, Meg, just before we do wrap up today's episode, where can we find you on social media? Just find me at MegLayNZ on Twitter or TikTok. Um, it's where I post all my grass stuff. So if you're interested, go and have a look. Well, there we go, folks. If you do want to follow Megan's, as I said, I do highly recommend it. It's so interesting learning more about this industry. You can do so by clicking on those links in the podcast description below, along with those courses and those links to the GMA. But that is it from myself and Meg for today's episode of the County Cricket Podcast. So each and every single one of you wonderful listeners out there, thank you ever so much for tuning in. And as always, guys, we'll see you on the next one.